number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. says these words, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. But while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He has prepared for us this very thing as God. has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. Amen. This is the word of the Lord this morning. I've said it before and will undoubtedly say it again. But what we believe in this life ultimately determines how we live our life. Our belief defines how we live. As I began to prepare this this week, I looked at my wallet and realized I had a dollar bill in there. And like a two-year-old child, it was quickly gone. But I took that wallet and or that money and I looked at it and found these words. It said, on this, this dollar bill said this note... Is legal tender for all debts, public and private. This note, this dollar bill, and maybe it says it on a five or ten or twenty or a hundred. I'm not that rich, but anyways, it says those words. This note is, is legal tender for all debts. And so with that dollar and the nickel that was in my car and McDonald's app on my phone, I went and bought myself a nice coffee for $1.05. What a bargain. Why did I do this? I did this because I believe those words. This note is, is legal tender. This note is good for all debts that you face. I believe that I could have taken that dollar and not just went to McDonald's, but could have went to MedEd and said, here you go, apply that towards my bill. Don't know if it would have helped that much, but I could have taken it and went to Sunoco and 
Bought a dollar's worth of gas. Could have taken that and, and went to PNC that holds our mortgage and said, here you go. Let's put this on the principal. Would have went from a 30-year note to a 30-year note. You see, I, I believe that. I believe that that note was good. And that note defines how I choose to live my life. Defines what I do. But it just as easily went to Turkey Hill and got a iced coffee the same way. These beliefs, of course, are not based on what I fancy or reckon. These beliefs are not just based on, on what I imagine. Oh, I imagine that finding this dollar, I mean, we did that when we were kids, right? We found a dollar and we thought we were rich. We had the whole world in the palm of our hands. These beliefs are based on knowledge. These beliefs are defined by years. Conducting transactions in the marketplace. They're shaped by my life, my work, my schooling that I have, they all go into forming this belief that a dollar bill has intrinsic value, that it is good to pay debts on a coffee or a mortgage or whatever you want to say. You see, when we say that we are Christians, we say that we believe in God, we believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Our Christianity is not a, it's not a belief basis that simply operates on feeling. We don't say we're Christians because we got up this morning and we felt like going to church. We felt like coming and, and worshiping. We felt like singing songs. Our belief is, is based on knowledge. It operates on what we know is true. Truth is what guides our belief. And therefore, guides our practices. Orthodoxy, which means right belief. To say that we believe in orthodox Christianity, that means we believe in right beliefs about Christianity. Not just Eastern Orthodox. But our orthodoxy, our right belief will ultimately lead to orthopraxy, which is right practice. We do what is right. We do and we operate and we live in a way that is right in accordance with what we believe and what we know to be true. And we see this being borne out in Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians. His belief in the resurrection, His belief in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and He knows that He will rise again one day, defines how He lives His life. Even in the midst of hardship and pain and struggle. Even in the midst of of not knowing what was going to happen to his life many times, he believed that he will rise again. He believed that Christ is risen from the dead. He knew that he has risen from the dead, and therefore it defined how he lives his life. 
And as Jim read this morning, the words of Job when he said, I know my Redeemer lives and, and on the end I will stand with Him on that last day. When I read to you again from Job that said, I know that no purpose of yours can be stopped or thwarted. I ask you this question this morning. Do you know what it means that Christ is risen from the dead? And furthermore, do you believe that truth? Because what you know and what you believe will ultimately define how you live your life. So we look at these verses and we ask the first question, what do we know? What do we know? This is how the chapter opens. For we know. The apostle is immediately setting out the premise that what he is about to say to the church here in Corinth is based on what he knows. Based on what the church knows. We know that there is a law of gravity. We know that it's real. And that's why if we climb on the roof this afternoon, I don't know why you'd do that, but we know that we're not going to jump off of it. We know that we're not going to take a rock and again, I don't know why you would do this, but throw it straight over our head. We know that we get to the Jersey Shore and our cars, eventually we have to stop. The cars are not going to get us over the Atlantic to England. This is what we know. And here the Apostle makes this claim, for we know. Okay, so what do we know? Well, first of all, we know that this body, this body is temporary. This body is temporary. Again, starts off by saying, for we know, and then he tells us what we know. So what is it? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, for we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed. We'll get a few words here in this verse. First of all is this word tent. We know that if the tent, now, why would the Apostle Paul use that word tent? Well, he was a tent maker, obviously. So he talks about what he knows. But, more than that, or maybe because he is a tent maker, he knows that the tent, a tent, is a temporary dwelling place. Many of you love to camp. Maybe last weekend you're out camping or you have plans this summer to go camping. I do too, but it's in a Fairfield Inn or Hampton Inns and Suites where they have free coffee and a comfortable bed. But you, you love to tend. You, you go out and you do that and you set it up and you have fun. But what do you do? What did you do last Monday when you realized, I got to go back to work on Tuesday? You took your tent down. Put it back in the bag. The beautiful things about living in this part of the country is the fact that there's a lot of history. And I began to look this last week and on what is the oldest building here in the Lehigh Valley. And, and I don't know if I came up with it, but here's something I did find. It's called Shelter House. It's a historic home lived in a, or located in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. 
It was constructed in 1734, and it is believed to be the oldest continually, continuously occupied building structure in Lehigh County and the Lehigh Valley. Again, I don't know if this is the case, and I really couldn't find a, a list online that had, you know, the 10 oldest buildings here in the, in the area. So if that's the case, if not, you history bus can correct me after church. But, but it was constructed again in 1734. Surprisingly, what I did not find was a record of a tent that George Washington may have slept in in Valley Forge or U.S. Grant slept in in Gettysburg. I did not find a tent that any of these soldiers lived in in a brief period of time that they were out here. So Paul immediately uses the word tent. Tent to describe our temporary dwelling place. And then he says, if this earthly tent is destroyed, and we see in this word destroy, the idea of tearing down or demolishing again with the view of a tent. You had your wonderful night. You sat by the campfire. You roasted s'mores. You went fishing. And again on Monday, you pulled the tent pegs out of the ground you rolled it up in the bag, and if it went in there exactly the way it was when you bought it, you get extra credit this morning. Because that never happens, right? What's he saying? He's pointing out the fact that there is a day coming. There is coming a day when all of us are going to see the destruction of our physical body. When all of us are going to realize this truth that we are all appointed once to die. You know, as Christians, we really, really need to strike a balanced view on our bodies. Bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We need to care for them. We should not abuse our bodies, whether by poor diet or lack of exercise or, or even going overboard the other way and abusing it too much by too much physical exertion. We need to understand that God has given us these bodies and we should care for them to the best of our ability. Think often of Charles Spurgeon, who's probably the greatest English preacher in London there in the late 1800s. The words are magnificent and more once have I quoted him will continue. They're such a blessing. Spurgeon did not care for himself and he died in his 50s, mid-50s because he worked too hard. Enjoyed smoking cigars a little bit too much and on and on. He did not care for his body and it led to a life that was probably cut short from what he could have done. And yet at the same time, we, we cannot go overboard on the care of our body. Read some time ago where LeBron James, one of the greatest basketball players ever, spends a year a million and a half dollars on caring for his body. Now, you probably say it's worth it because he's made hundreds of million, maybe even over a billion dollars in his life. But yet, a few weeks ago, his team was swept in the playoffs. The Denver Nuggets and 
began to read articles and said LeBron James at 38, 39 years old is losing his battle with father time. It's not just him, Tom Brady, who, you know, I hate with the passion of a thousand sons because he's my age and still playing football, but he has had to retire. He's had to quit because even at his age, he can't keep up. Tiger Woods, again, who's made hundreds of millions of dollars and one of the greatest golfers, cannot keep up with 25-year-olds who can hit the ball so much farther than he can. You see, we care for our bodies. Yet we don't idolize them because we know that they will perish. They will perish. Saw a news story the other day that some tech mogul is worth over a billion dollars. He was 45 again, so I don't know what's going on with guys in a midlife crisis, but he was trying his best to ensure that he is going to live forever. And I read that and I thought, you poor man. Maybe you'll live longer than I am and for the same age, but I know this. You will breathe your last one day. Care for them, but we know that they will perish. It's not just to discourage you and make you feel like life isn't worth living. There's good news. There's good news here. We know that this earthly body is perishing, but we also know that there is an eternal body. There is an eternal body waiting for us. Yes, it is true that this body, this life will perish. Fall apart, it's subject to decay. But here is the good news. There is an eternal body waiting for us. Again, verse 1, we know that the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know, we know that when this body is torn down, there is a new and glorified body. We know that once our life is over, once we breathe our last breath, we will be in the presence of God. And one day when the trumpet sounds, we will live in a glorified, resurrected body. If the tent which forms our earthly dwelling denotes the physical body of the believer, it is reasonable to regard the building from God as a reference to another body, the resurrection body. By referring to the resurrection of body as a building, Paul may be emphasizing its permanence as compared with the impermanence of a present body he calls a tent. Again, when I get on, I try to find what, what building has, has survived the longest in this part of the country. You never see the story of a tent that was purchased at Walmart 20 years ago and is now sitting in your basement dry rotting. No, it's talking about a structure, a foundation that was built some 300 years ago and yet it still remains. See, the life that is to come is an eternal, eternal life, a life that we will dwell in forever. Body that will not fade or decay or rot away like these temporary bodies 
will. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Yes, while I sit there in our kitchen and hear the ridicule of my children because my wife takes something and holds it way out here to be able to read it. I have to take my glasses off and hold it way up here because we realize at our age that this body is not lasting. We also, we also see ourselves facing with the hope that one day we will be in an eternal, imperishable, immortal body that will never, ever, ever diminish or fade with time. And so as Paul says, this is what we knew, we know, and then he tells us how we act in light of this knowledge, verse two, for in this tent we groan. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Verse four, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up. By life. Live here on earth and while we are here, we want to be clothed with an immortal body. Paul is mixing analogies here, switching analogies if you would, and he goes to the idea of being clothed, of putting on the immortal body as simply living, as opposed, I should say, to simply living in this destructive body we groan we're burdened the cry of every human heart is that there would be something more something greater so whether it's the fact that your eyesight changes when you're in your 40s bifocals becomes a word in your vocabulary whether it's the fact that I cannot run up to the grocery store without driving by Ruggiero's funeral home there on Main Street in and every once in a while cones are out and signs are out saying, don't park on the side of the streets. People are walking in there. Begin to realize it's a cry in my heart for something greater, something eternal, something that's going to last forever. That's why if I were to ask these athletes, men who have achieved the top of their field, who have become the greatest in their sport, are you really fulfilled? If they were to be perfectly honest, they would have to say there has to be something more. More in this life, isn't there? How is it that my name was all over ESPN and now nobody cares? The writer of Ecclesiastes said, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in man's heart so that he cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. The heart of every single human being, there is a longing for something. Something that is eternal. So what do we know? We know that our body is perishing. 
We know that we have an eternal body waiting. And third, we know that God is preparing us. God is preparing us for it all. God is preparing us for all of this. We have an eternal hope and future. And it's not one that's based on whims and fantasies. It's one that's based on the eternal purposes of God. God Himself is preparing this eternal future for us. And Jesus is the one who said to us, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to Myself. That where I am, you may be also. Jesus tells His disciples, this, this isn't it. I'm going. I've got something better that I am preparing for you. And if I finish, and when I finish preparing it, I will come again. As God Himself is prepared and fitting us for eternity in God Himself who will bring us to our eternal Inheritance, Paul says again in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Do you see that progression? God foreknew us. God predestined us. God chose us. God justified us. And God will Glorify us. Our boys would buy those Lego sets. There they'd sit there with those instruction books. And they'd build on it for a while and then leave it on the page of where, where they are. We're on step four of ten, step six of twenty, or whatever it is. You see, God has a plan and purpose. He knows us. He chooses us. He calls us. He justifies us. And guess what? He is going to glorify us. He is going to finish the work that He has begun. The day of Christ Jesus. And as we walk in this earth, we know we know that what God is doing to us is preparing us. Preparing us for something greater. You want to know why God tells us to love our neighbor? Because we are going to live an eternal kingdom that is surrounded and filled and saturated with love. Why does God tell us to forgive? Because we are going to live in a place 
of perpetual forgiveness. Why does God tell us to to pray for those who use us, to bless them, to do good to them? Because that is what the eternal kingdom is going to be like. Why do we learn patience through our struggles and sufferings? Because we are going to be in a place of perfect peace and patience. You see, as you go through this life and you struggle through the things that you do, you have to realize God is preparing you for what is coming. David Garland says this about this verse, Paul now affirms that God, who accomplishes all that is promised in Scripture, has made us for this very purpose, for this very thing. This thing is the clothing event mentioned in verse 4, the complete transformation of what is perishable to what is imperishable. It also refers to chapter 4, verse 17, where the same verb appears. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Life given by God overwhelms mortality. Some Corinthians fail to see this abiding visible force working in Christians, forming them for heaven by conforming them to Christ. They see only the wasting away of Paul's outer nature and do not see that he is daily being transformed inwardly. This transient surface reality of our lives that so many in this world prize and spend billions trying to preserve will eventually be destroyed. Only thing that matters then is what has been happening to a person internally. Those who are in Christ will have their decrepit, decaying, outer frames replaced with an eternal glory beyond imagining. See, this is what God is doing. It's not my dream. It's not my wish. It's not my fancy desire, some way to keep me employed so you'll keep coming and giving checks. No, this is God. The truth of what God has said. He said, I am preparing place for you. We know that this body is perishing, that there is an immortal body. God is preparing us for this. And then we know. We know that the Holy Spirit is a down payment on this future reality. We know that the Holy Spirit is a down payment It's one thing to get on Zillow.com or Realtor.com. It's one thing to go to open houses to meet the real estate agent at a house, walk through it. It's entirely another, isn't it? Pull out that checkbook. Write that check. Put there in the memo, this is my earnest payment. Depositing earnest money is an important part of the home buying process. It tells the real estate seller, you are in earnest. 
lot of people tell us, oh yeah, I'm going to do that, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to. What do we tell them? Put your money where your mouth is. You want to buy this house? Give me a down payment. Let me know you are serious. Again, verse 5, He has prepared us for this very thing is God. It's God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How do we know that eternity is real? How do we know that there is a better day coming? We know this because of the Holy Spirit that is at work in our lives. Because God has done more than just say, Oh yeah, I'm going away. Don't worry, I'm coming back one day. No, Jesus said, I am not leaving you as orphans. Instead, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. Will dwell with you and live inside of you. The fact that you are filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment you come to Christ and you give your life to Him and He places His Spirit in your life, that is a guarantee that says that person is mine. And every time we forgive, every time we say kind words, every time we bless instead of curse, we are showing that God is transforming our lives and He is preparing us for the life that is to come. Every good deed is a preparation for that eternal life. The Holy Spirit is changing us from glory to glory until we stand in Christ complete just like Him. See, these are not the vain wishes of some empty so-called deity. This is the eternal purpose of God that He is working in our life. As Job said, as we've already read and quoted, His purposes can not be stopped. See, this is what we know. If you don't know that, this morning I want to tell you there is a God. There's a God who loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. If you will receive Him as Savior, if you will accept Him into your heart and have Him forgive you of your sins, you can have the assurance that you will be with Him forever. Again, we don't say this because I I was sitting down last night and had some great revelation that this was going to happen. Say this based on the truth of God's Word. and What we know what we know is real. So what does this knowledge do for us? What does this knowledge do for us? It's one thing to know something, but how does this change our lives? How are we to live in light of this knowledge? Well, Paul gives us two answers here. First one is this, it provides confidence. Provides confidence. Far from getting discouraged over his frail, broken down body, Paul says these words. We are always, always of good courage. We are always confident. 
We know that while we are at home in a body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now let me ask you something. How confident would you be if your biography included these words? This is 2 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews of forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, toil, hardship, many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold, and exposure. I mean, Harrison Ford ain't got nothing on this guy, does he? Except for the lost ark, if he ever found it. You say, how, 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 can you, how can you hear those words and say, I'm confident? You can really press on after all that. You can know. You can believe that there's waiting for something greater waiting for you after all that you have been through. Yes, you can. You can press on if you know, if you believe that there is waiting for you a resurrected body that will never face hunger, disease, famine, will never feel the beating of a whip upon your back again. You can be confident after all that you go through. If you believe a greater day is coming, Martin Luther, that great German hymn writer, wrote these words, and though this world the devil feels should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. Prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can't endure. For lo, His doom is sure. One little word will fail Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth the Spirit and the gifts of ours through Him who with us sighteth. Let good and kindreds go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body and that's all they can do. I mean, we run around and we're so worried. We lock our doors. We set our security alarm. We put our 9 millimeter at the side of our bed. And I'm not judging you because more than once I have had to get out of bed on a cold winter night because we weren't sure if the door was locked. And I have to be the bad guy and go, well, probably because I forgot to. Again, is that the worst you can do to me is put a bullet in my head? I do. I'm going to be in the presence of God forever. Yes, don't get me wrong. I'm not running down on the mean streets of Philadelphia tonight after dark. Don't worry about that. 
I know that. As life goes, no matter what it is, I'm going to be with Christ forever. This should inspire confidence and courage in our lives. Many Christians are running around and they're, they're, oh man, did you see what they did in Washington? Everything is so bad. Really? All they can do is throw me in jail and destroy this body. That's all they can do. I mean, they can take all my money and taxes too, but I have no power once I'm in the presence of God. I don't care if he's a Democrat or a Republican, he cannot hurt me. Once I am in the arms of Jesus forever. Yeah, but but don't, don't you know I got a doctor appointment and I, I'm afraid of what's going to happen. And yes, I understand. And, and yes, I've never been there. Doctor tells me my time is limited. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God forbid I stand there over my wife's grave one day. I will stand there with the assurance that I will see her again. What a glorious day that will be. I am confident. I walk by faith in this confidence, in this assurance that one day my faith will become my eyes. Because Jesus has overcome. This doesn't just provide confidence and courage. This knowledge also motivates Him. Motivates us. Motivates us. It should drive you knowing what is ahead. should drive you to want to please your God. Yes, I want to be at home. I want to be in the presence of the Lord. While I am journeying in this life, I want to live my life for His glory. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim. Our aim to please Him. Why? Because we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or bad. The believer that has the hope of resurrection life is not one that merely sits in confident anticipation of what is to come, but he is also one who is motivated to live a life pleasing to God. Because of what Christ has done for us and the promise that we have been assured of, we now want to please Him. And I don't go home every night. I don't go home every night wondering, thinking, have I done enough to earn my wife's love and affection this day? I know I have that. I had it 25 years ago. We said I do. But I go home every night thinking, how can I please her? She is mine and I want to be hers. How can I live my life for Him? 
See, when you know what God has done for you and you know what is waiting for you at the end of this journey, you want to live your life for his glory, whether that means packing up and going across the world preaching the gospel or probably for most of us just living our day-to-day life. I want to please him. I like these words from one commentator again that I read. So what humans do in a body has moral significance and eternal consequences. Everyone who is mindful of their mortality must therefore be mindful of their morality. If we know, if we remember, if we believe, there is an eternal destination waiting for us. God's going to give us an account. Everything we have done, it should affect how we live our lives. How we treat each other. How we go from day to day. What does it matter? It's one Sunday. There's 52 year. I mean, the fish are biting on this day. Are you kidding? The perfect conditions are perfect. But it matters. The guy has millions of dollars. Is he really going to care if I just skim a few off the top of his account and charge more than I should have? Yes. It matters. They never see that person again, so I'll just give them the one finger wave as I drive by. No, it matters. My apologies if I did that to you yesterday. I didn't. Don't calm down. (laughs) You see, we know what is going on. We know what is waiting. Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 2. It is written, No eye has seen. No ear has heard, nor has the heart of man imagined. God has prepared. While I have this life, whether it ends today, or whether we celebrate a hundred years, I want to live my life for His glory. I want to live my life in anticipation of what's coming. I want to honor Him in all that I say and do because of all that He has done for me and what I know is waiting for me on the other side. We know this. We know this. This morning we come to the table of the Lord. First Sunday of the month we take communion. We do this for a couple of reasons. We believe that the sacrifice of Jesus has cleansed our sins. We believe that one day we will feast with Him forever. We do not take the bread and wine to 